Good morning, everybody. It's wonderful to be here this morning with you all and worship God with you and now share the word of God with us all. Uh, if you would, uh, today's passage does come from 1 Samuel 13. And I just wanted to, before we pray and before we start, I just wanted to share that I will go through the entire passage. So you'll see in the bulletins what the next week's scripture is, and that'll be the entire passage that I'll be going over. However, we won't read the entire passage um, when we do the scripture reading. But I will go over the entire chapter uh, this morning. So before we begin, let us pray. Our God and Father, we ask you, imploring you, since all fullness of wisdom and light is found in you, to mercifully enlighten us by your Holy Spirit in the true understanding of your word, and to give us grace to receive it in true fear and humility. May we be taught by your word to place our trust only in you and to serve and honor you as we should, so that we may glorify your holy name in all our living and edify our neighbor by our good example rendering to God the love and obedience which faithful servants owe their masters and children their parents, since it has pleased you to graciously receive us among the number of your servants and children. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 13. We'll be reading the first seven verses, but again, if you would keep your Bibles open throughout the message, we'll go through the entire chapter. 1 Samuel chapter 13, I'll be reading from verses 1 through 7. And in reverence for the word of God, let us rise to our feet and hear now the word of the Lord. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. And a thousand were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it, said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Bethaven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. My friends, this is the inerrant, infallible word of the Lord. Uh, we ended last week on three things that the text showed us. And it showed us how we can know if we are one of God's elect. How do you know if you are one of God's people? 
And number one was you get instructed in the good and right way. It meant that you stay under the grace of God. And number two was that you fear God and serve Him faithfully with all of your heart. And number three was that you consider what great things God has done for you. And for the people of God, number three meant that we worship God. The worship of God is the highlight of life. The desire to worship, the excitement in worship is all innate in the human mind, body, and soul. You know, when we see an amazing feat of athleticism, if I see it on TV or especially if I see it in person, I, I immediately have an involuntary, loud, guttural, like guttural response. I'm like, oh, you know, when I see it. And if I'm watching with my wife, she gets like, what are you doing, you know? But I believe it's built in us to respond in such a way. And the reason why Sunday worship, and the reason why is that Sunday worship is we get to open the scriptures and we get to see the amazing works of God and what he has done to save his people. And with each turn of the page, from chapter to chapter, verse by verse, the people of God get to see and hear the word of God being proclaimed. And with each turn, it's as if we would be also turning a gem in, under the light to see the reflection in almost a new but beautiful way. And the people of God are those that, although once couldn't see, now see. Although once couldn't hear, now hear. And we've seen maybe videos of babies through technology. They get to hear their mother's voice for the first time and how their eyes widen and they are filled with awe. And I believe it is like that for many of us. When we heard the word proclaim, and when we heard for the first time and understood, and we recognized how we are now standing under the grace of God. And so how do we respond? We respond in worship. But the question is, See, I believe if you really see that, you will respond. Just like if I saw someone do a very intense, you know, slam dunk in a basketball game or something like that. But how do we respond rightly, right? That's the question. How do you respond rightly? What's the right, right way to respond? And not only that, who gets to dictate how we respond? Something that Whatever, whatever way we respond should be fine, right? Because after all, isn't the first and most genuine response really what we want to give, right? Whatever innately comes out, involuntarily comes out, isn't that the right response if we are to measure worship? And the answer is no. Um, just because you see your team at the last milliseconds of a game throw up a three-pointer to win that game, it doesn't mean you can get up and start throwing knives at people, right? That's not the right response. You can't just start throwing knives at people because that's your way of celebration. And I agree that that's also ridiculous. I also agree that it would take a ridiculous person to think of an illustration like that. However one would have to hold the position 
then that not all responses are appropriate in celebration. When it comes to worshiping God, then, God also stipulates or has terms and conditions on how we ought to worship. When approaching the holy throne of God in worship, He, the King of kings, gets to dictate on how His subjects may approach. In theological terms, we call this the regulative principle. Now, I'm saying all this because for the past few years, it seems as though the church has forgotten this principle. In 2020, during the height of COVID, uh, the governor of California in July, I believe, ordered all churches to stop singing. Now, this is outside of whether it is right or wrong to stop singing for whatever reason. The question is, Does the government get to decide this? Do public health experts get to decide what happens in a house of worship? And what about during emergencies? To many in the evangelical world, this was a difficult question. And that saddened me a great deal. Over the years, it has been evident on how weak the church has become. It's one thing if the churches of certain groupings got together to decide through prayer, the study of scripture, to have a council. That's one thing. But having an outside, non-clergy politician dictating to the church on worship matters should be very concerning in the least. And that's exactly what a public health official is that's exactly what a public health expert is they are a politician because it's right there in their title public they just happen to be politicians that weren't voted in office but they hold public office nonetheless now i'm getting to this illust- this uh, current event that's happening this i think maybe one we are maybe witnessing one of the most important supreme court cases and proceedings in modern history. And uh, I'm going to quote the Wall Street Journal on this. And this is what they're proceeding on right now. At issue is Bremerton High School football coach Joe Kennedy's post-game practice of taking a knee to pray on the 50-yard line, win or lose, sometimes with players coming over to join him. Mr. Kennedy, a Christian, says he feels compelled to praise God but played no favorites with the students who practiced in the prayer circle. The school district says he used his public employment to promote his religion. He had previously led locker room prayers, which he stopped after a district request to do so. He then publicized the tension over his post-game devotionals, which drew media attention at the homecoming game, the official said. Coach Joe Kennedy actually wrote an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal addressing this as well. And this is what he wrote. The Bremerton High School athletic director seemed sure that my experience training Marines to work as a team was all the qualification I needed to be a football coach. As I weighed the opportunity, I caught the movie Facing the Giants. If you don't know what Facing the Giants is, it's like this uh, Christian movie I believe was made in 
2006. And, um, yeah, uh, it was about football. But he saw this movie Facing the Giants, and he's, I'm going to continue on quoting what he wrote in the op-ed. It seemed an answer from God. I committed to coaching football and promised God that I would take a knee by myself in quiet prayer at the 50-yard line following every game, win or lose. Over the years, my prayers developed into motivational talks in which I led players who chose me, chose to join me in prayer. When the school district eventually told me to stop doing that, I did. My commitment with God didn't involve others. I was only to pray by myself at the 50-yard line after each game. But then the school district got lawyers involved, and they kept shifting the goalposts every time I complied. Eventually, they said I had to refrain from any, quote, demonstrative religious activity, unquote, visible to the students or the public. They suggested, now this is good, this is what they suggested, okay? They suggested instead I walk across the field, up the stairs, across a practice field, into the main school building, down the hall, and into the janitor's office if I wanted to pray after games. So this is the current proceedings that are happening in the Supreme Court. On hearing this, though, some might respond and some have responded. There should be a separation of church and state. A separation of church and state. And I'll mention this again, but the separation of church and state, first of all, isn't in the Constitution. And secondly, the separation of church and state wasn't meant to completely divorce the church from the state. As if you, if you went to the public square, you had to put your religion aside and then go in. But somehow, we have all been convinced that that's what it means and that it is a good thing that we do so. You know, Thomas Jefferson argued that the First Amendment prohibited the federal chief magistrate from issuing religious proclamations of any kind, explaining that the federal government should not intermeddle with doctrines, disciplines, or exercises of religious institutions. You know, that meant that the government has no authority over the church when it comes to how we worship. And it's not the founding fathers that gives the church that authority to worship either. Jefferson just doesn't have magically this authority to dictate this. It is the head of all magistrates, the one that gives all the political leaders of the world their authority he gets to decide and dictate how we worship. Jesus Christ, after having died to atone for our sins, was raised again to life, and in his resurrected body, he would go to his disciples and say to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The disciples, understanding this and knowing this, would answer their local magistrate, in Acts 5, by saying we must obey God rather than men. But is this how Christians have been responding to the again erroneous grasp of the separation of church and state? Do you check your religion at the door before going into your workplace or any other public sphere? And if you do, under whose authority do you do this? And so the major theme of this passage will be on this topic. Under whose authority? Chapters 13 and 14 are connected. 
although we're only going to go through chapter 13 this morning. But chapter 13 does not stand on its own. But both chapter 13 and 14 of 1 Samuel constitute one narrative. But because chapter 13 bears such significant weight in its own right, I want to go over chapter 13 today and with, uh, finish with 14 on the following week, God willing. So the three quick points that I have for this chapter is the clue, the stain, and the aftermath. The clue the stain, and the aftermath. First, the clue. This is from verses 1 to 7. Now, this clue, C-L-U-E, will fully blossom in chapter 14, what it points to. But here we begin to see the beginning of Saul's rule and reign. You have to remember how Saul got here was incredible. It was amazing. It was no doubt led by God. Impeccable. But this is how we start. And starting from verse 2, this is how you would see Saul taking reign as king, as a political leader. And starting from verse 2, we see that Saul would take two companies. Each company numbered about a thousand soldiers. So Saul would take two companies, and his son Jonathan takes one. Even though it doesn't say here that Jonathan is Saul's son, we know that he is because of verse 16. There was a garrison of Philistines at Geba, and Jonathan took his army, and he defeated them there. Afterwards, Saul blows his trumpet. Saul blows his trumpet, saying, let the Hebrews hear. Hear what? Hear that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. And also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And here you might think, wait, what? If you're carefully reading this, you would take a step back. Like, wait, what's going on? That's like saying, I'm just going to pick two random names. It's like saying a man named Sam, right? Would take a group of 30 people to hand out food, let's say, in a church ministry. But Sam takes 20 people and he gives 10 people to another random name, Brian, let's say a man named Brian. And Brian, with his crew of 10 people, hands out the food to everybody, okay? And in the church announcements, it says that Sam handed out all the food and that everybody loves Sam. And then you might respond, well, Sam was in charge of the food delivery and the food was delivered. So I guess he gets the credit. And then you would respond, yes, but while technically true, there seems to be something amiss. In the very least, one might wonder, then does Brian's success point to some deficiency in Sam? What I mean by that is, does Jonathan's success then point to some deficiency in Sam, I mean Saul. Because it turns out that Michmash, where Saul was, where he brought two companies, where they were stationed, it actually wasn't far from Geba at all. In fact, scholars put it that Michmash was closer to Geba than Jonathan was closer to Geba from where he was. And so, That's what's going on. 
So you're thinking, oh, that's interesting. And then what we see then afterwards is that the press release that was disseminated was effective. As a result, it says that at the end of verse 4, that the people were all called out to meet Saul at Gilgal. So imagine the hype, the hoopla, the hubbub in Gilgal. And this place was significant because Saul was also inaugurated there. And now the Philistines respond in verse 5. The Philistines saw the surrounding territories as their subordinates. All the people in that area, they saw them as their subordinates. And it seems that the Israelites really did make a stench to that degree because not only did they bring all their heavy weaponry and technology, because back then the Israelites still were using old technology. They still used bronze, right? And the Philistines had the newest technology. They used iron. But they brought all their heavy weaponry, their technology. And it says the troop numbers were like the sand on the seashore. That's a lot of people. So the celebration at Gilgal would immediately take a turn. And it would turn to dread. And in panic, they would start to hide in caves, holes, rocks, tombs and cisterns which is almost comical a cistern was like this basin where you would keep water and they would jump into cisterns to hide and some others would just flee by crossing the river jordan and if you were one of the few that stayed with saul in gilgal you followed him yes but you follow followed him trembling next point is called the stain from verses 8 to 15 for a week, this is going on. And all Saul could do was wait. Apparently, Saul had been instructed to wait seven days. And the Philistines have a stranglehold on Israel now. Their troops are just growing by the day, and Israel's is dwindling. And it's the seventh day that Saul can't wait any longer because at this rate, everyone's going to leave him. So he disobeys the instruction. He disobeys the instruction. But if you're looking at this, can you really fault Saul for his disobedience? And doesn't, isn't he penalized for something what's seemingly small in a very severe way? Samuel would eventually go that your whole line will be cut off from kingship forever because of this. A, that's a pretty severe penalty for just not waiting seven days, getting it started. Wouldn't you do that? Look, I've been waiting long. This is, this is going to get bad. I'm just going to get the process started. With every passing day, his army grew notably smaller and his anxiety would grow. The Philistines could come at any given moment. And if they came, they would be annihilated. Instead of this censure, how about some empathy, Samuel? How about maybe even some mercy? And I think we can, we can empathize and sympathize with Saul at least a little bit, right? Because we all have that tendency, don't we? We say things like, I sinned. How about a little empathy, God? Some mercy. Aren't you, God, that's all forgiving? And the cards were stacked all against me. But there's more. 
In verse 11, Saul even tries to shift the blame to Samuel. He says that Samuel didn't come in time. But he knew that he was to wait for Samuel. He was to wait until Samuel came to him. Samuel's task was to be the bearer of God's word and on how to proceed against the war or with the war against the Philistines. And it was Saul's job then just to wait. But Saul proceeded anyway. He would take the offering and sacrifice it himself. And this is what it shows about Saul. It was the ritual that was essential to Saul. But the instruction was dispensable. The ritual was essential, the instruction dispensable. Saul did not submit to Samuel's instruction and ultimately did not submit to God's authority, revealing his heart of disobedience. What Saul is saying by his actions is that in certain emergencies, God's word is unnecessary and certain situations can render God's instruction fallible. That means when push comes to shove, you, not God, it's you that are the ultimate decision maker for your life. You say you believe in God, but in crunch time, you just have to take matters into your own hands. By disobeying the king of kings' decrees, Saul is charged with disobedience and the punishment is that he would not enjoy an ongoing dynasty of kings from his lineage. God doesn't reject him, Saul himself just yet. That will come in the later chapters. But here we see that there is an even sadder outcome than what has happened because of Saul's disobedience than the cutting off of his lineage. Samuel leaves Gilgal. And it says the rest of the people went up to meet with Saul. So what it's showing is Samuel and Saul separate here. And you might wonder why it seems so harsh. And this is a time where I believe today, in modern day society, this is a time where we are so entitled that we think that we always deserve a second chance. We may get a second chance. But that is purely because of God's grace. I'm afraid we can get to a point where we start to believe now that we deserve God's grace. I deserve a second chance because I really tried. And the question is, by whose standard, though, did you really try? By whose standards do you really deserve a second chance? And many times I believe the answer really is by your own personal standards. By your standards, you really tried. By your standards, you gave it your best shot. By your standards, you did right. And so if something bad happens, then it was Samuel's fault. It's someone else's fault that this happened to me, God. If only it wasn't for Samuel being late. Again, I ask who gets to set the standards? Is it you? We've become intoxicated with this idea now that we must speak our truth. I must speak my truth. 
It implies then that there can be more than one truth, which in turn implies that there is no truth. And your, your, your like truth may be that the moon is a ball of green cheese. And another person's truth could be that the moon is actually made of metallic iron. But only one of you are right. Either that or both of you are wrong. But both of you can't be right. That's the law of non-contradiction. You can't have one be the case and one not be that same case at the same time. That means you can't say that this cup is black, but this cup isn't black at the same time. It's either one or the other. And so we are now currently in a place where we can have our own truths and that it's important that we speak our own truths. This is absolutely not the case. This only amounts to gibberish, where words and definitions don't mean anything anymore. We are literally witnessing, in modern-day society, a return of the Tower of Babel. If up means down and down means up, you can't do anything with one another. And eventually, we all split and go our own way, and society will break down. Who gets to set the standards? Who gets to set the standards for all of life? Not just these worship halls. Who gets to set the standards for life? Who has claimed all authority on heaven and on earth? And what happens when you rebel against him? Last point is the aftermath in verse 16 to 24. Once the prophet leaves, the people are without direction. And you can read it in the text. There is an air of helplessness, of hopelessness. And that's what I really see today, too. When people are complaining about all these injustices that are happening, there is no thanksgiving. There's only anger and bitterness and hopelessness and depression. Suicide rates going up, and to solve it, you need to do something even more ridiculous, and people are more angry, more bitter, more helpless, more hopeless, more depressed, and the cycle just continues to spiral down. But you see this here. There's this air of helplessness. Most of the Israelites either didn't come to help or they did and they fled. There are maybe 600 men left. And with everyone hiding or who have, uh, everyone that's ran away, there's no defense for the Philistine raiders that come and just pillage and loot whatever they want. They came in with signs, perhaps, that said fiery but peaceful, and no one could stop them. They didn't even have weapons. You had to travel to get a weapon then. You had to travel to Philistine territory to even sharpen a farm tool. And that's how the Philistines really were, <clears throat> they were really shrewd in their dealings with their neighbors. So you had to travel all the way down to Philistine territory. And the fee was so highly inflated, the scholars gathered that the common exchange back then was silver. So two-thirds of a shekel of silver would have been an enormously high rate just to, just to pay to sharpen the point of your plow. And this is an extremely hopeless situation that they're in. But as we've seen before, it's in these extremely hopeless situations that God comes and proves to be a God of deliverance. It's really in these backdrops of darkest moments 
that God shines brightest. However, I would think that it's unwise to move on too quickly. Too many times we want things to end like a sitcom because we know chapter 14 will come or we know that as we continue to read the scriptures, it will eventually bring out the ultimate salvation in Jesus Christ. That's true. That's right. However, sometimes we need a pause button rather than a fast forward one. Because we may want to skip to the end, but if we were to skip over to the reason why it was so dark in the first place, we would lose on the why of the stain of disobedience is indeed so terrible. Uh, Some odd years ago, I remember giving a Good Friday sermon, and it was to uh, a conglomeration of churches, and the sermon text ended with Jesus going into the grave. And the huge temptation was to just think of Sunday. But if you skipped over Friday, there would be no Sunday. It was important that we stay on Friday. And so I didn't give a long rhetoric on Easter because it wasn't Easter yet. The disciples at the time didn't know Easter was coming. They were cowering in the darkness. And that's precisely the point. Without God, You cower in the darkness because when the light comes, it will expose everything. And if we are exposed, we will be left wanting. That's why if you hate prayer, you not only have to chase it away from the 50-yard line. If you hate prayer, you have to force it into a janitor's closet because you need to hide because you are in judgment. In John chapter 3, it says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out In God. This is what Jesus says. Jesus says this to the disciples If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So if the light comes immediately and you're not fully covered, what are you to do? You will cower in fear. But this is how we start as Christians. In Christ, we start with first being covered, and not just by anything. We're not just covered by anything. We're covered by Jesus' perfect works. We're covered by his perfect life. And not only that, but now the people of God, if you're covered by his perfect works, the people of God are empowered now by the Word and the Holy Spirit to do good works. That's why Christians ought not to be afraid of the light to come. Jesus says this in John chapter 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And people listening to this now will be like, that's so hard. It's so hard. Do you understand, Puge? It's 2022. There are so many temptations. Temptation is one click away, one step away, one move away, and I can't handle it all. And when I hear something like, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, my heart is shaken. Because how am I supposed to keep your commandments when it seems so difficult. That's how dark of a time we are in. 
It's so hard to keep God's commandments. The enemies are like the sand on the seashore. They're, they're surrounding you. Like, what do you do? And when Jesus goes, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. How do we respond? We respond by completely falling at the mercy of God. That's how we respond. Knowing that we are covered, not just by his perfect works, but that we will be empowered by the Spirit, we move on in that faith. Jesus continues on after saying, if you love me, you will keep my commandments by saying this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Notice this. Jesus, the perfect advocate, the perfect substitution, the perfect Son of God will ask the Father. Will the Father deny him? Absolutely not. And so what he says he will do, and this is what Jesus says the Father will do, he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. This is how we know what is right and wrong. It's in the word and the spirit of truth helps us understand what is true. Jesus continues, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. This is the promise that we have from our Lord and Savior. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the one that says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you the ultimate helper to be with you forever. He will show you what is truth and what is a lie. The world cannot receive this. You're not going to receive this from the world. You're not going to receive truth from the world because the world doesn't know the spirit of truth. However, you know him because he dwells in you. Because why? You've been covered by Christ. All of this comes together when we put our faith in God. When I say we need to put ourselves, we need to just plop ourselves down at the mercy of God, this is what it means that we, at the mercy of God, understand that we cannot do anything. However, because God is with us, what can we not do then when it comes to obeying his commandments? And this is why we love him. We keep his commandments, understanding that God is the one that will continue to walk, strengthen, empower us. No longer are we people that are to walk in darkness. It doesn't matter how dark the world gets. No longer are we people who walk in darkness, but we are people who will forever walk in the light of Christ. That's why we put our faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the truth. Let us pray. God, we thank you for the message that you give us today. We recognize that it is incredibly difficult to walk in truth. In fact, in fact, it's impossible for no one has done this until our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ came and lived that perfect life, died the perfect death in obedience to you and your will, and that imputed and gave that perfect life to us. 
And now may we live in a manner that pleases you, the way that is most fruitful and joyful. May we have this faith, no matter how dark times may get, knowing that you are there with us for all eternity. Let's take this time to pray. And perhaps there are aspects in our life where we, be- we have believed and we have been deceived that we cannot follow the commands of God. It's this thing that I can't fully give. Uh, that's a lie. Because this is what Jesus has promised us in his word. So let's lift up that lie and confess our sins, repent from them, and ask God to lead us once again in every area of our life. Let's pray.